As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. What's up? I miss you guys. I might be a little bit comatose still from all the beef consumed in Argentina. Took a little side trip to Uruguay as well. Uruguay, I should say. It's always so hard to do when you travel because you want to say it correctly, but then Americans just say it differently. And so you run into that like Neanderthal, Neanderthal thing. Do you want to say it correctly or do you want to say it the way everyone else says it? So I guess I'll say it the way everyone else. In any event, you don't want to hear about my travels. You want to hear about what's going on in NBA basketball caught up nicely with about 12 hours worth of games over the weekend got some observations to share with you on the 15 and 60 we're going to go pretty much although we have a couple of little mini gamers to do but pretty much in order of the current standings and we'll discuss a little bit if applicable where those differ with what the projections are but why don't we start with today a really really nice win for the philadelphia 76ers over the milwaukee bucks but let's start with those bucks what are their fundamentals here the bucks are now 52 and 18 seven and four since the last 15 and 60 their plus 9.6 net rating is number one in the nba still they are second in offense up to first in defense and 538 projects them to win 62 games which is first in the east and first in the overall nba they have already clinched a playoff berth as is not a surprise to anybody and kind of before we get into the into the game itself it would i mean obviously it colored the game but the news that malcolm brogdon has a partial I-, I believe it's a partial tear of his plantar fascia and and I can't remember whether it's partial or full. I shouldn't have even said that. And the estimate yeah, it, is... It's partial. Partial. It's but, partial. But bad bad enough. Oh, that, yeah. It, you know, it's it, it, that it's uh, going to keep him out six to eight weeks. And uh, it's interesting that sometimes it seems like it's almost better if you have the full tear and then it can just heal. If you have a partial tear, you just have plantar fasciitis, then it can become a chronic problem. So it, it appears this is a, more of an acute injury than the type of thing that was just going to be plaguing him throughout the rest of the year. But six to eight weeks, I mean, that's a rough timeline for the Bucks. It is. I mean, we're basically four weeks from the end of the regular season. And while I don't think Milwaukee is going to struggle too much in the first round, I mean, you're starting to get into it there. And and that's a real a real threat. And I mean, one of the storylines, I think, of this game was that while it is fortunate that Milwaukee has a series of options, they're going to need to find one that they really like to replace him. I mean, they started this game with Nikola Mirotic, and so they kind of slid guys down a position. But they'll try, you know, Pat Connaughton and and Tony Snell and maybe Arsene Ilyasova and George Hill, but this has been the best team in the NBA, and Malcolm Brogdon is not the most important part of that, but an important part of that, and they're going to have to figure out how to replace his driving game, probably more so than anything else. Yeah, Frank Madden made a note that I retweeted that although Brogdon shoots it extremely well from downtown, over 40% for his career, he's a pretty low-volume guy, doesn't really take him off the dribble. Those hard straight-line drives that he's been so good at this year are the biggest 
biggest thing that they're missing because without him basically Bledsoe and Giannis are your only guys who can get to the basket Giannis can't really run any kind of a pick and roll the Bucks are pretty low in the NBA and pick and roll is something that has made the rounds in the last week or so that a lot of the best offenses in the NBA are pretty low in terms of percentage of possessions finished by the pick and roll ball handler which is probably good because those are less efficient possessions overall but nonetheless the Bucks are not a heavy pick and roll team Giannis can't really run pick and roll due to his lack of shooting and so not having that guy who can get to the basket and finish it is I think a problem and though Brogdon is not an amazing defender he was an option on the wing the Bucks are somewhat bereft of someone to guard the best wing players on the other team and I thought we saw that they didn't have a great option down the end of this game to guard Jimmy Butler as they're trying to make their comeback Jimmy Butler made several what you would say are difficult shots in isolation but he was getting pretty good looks you know we saw Paul George light them up previously as well even though these are theoretically contested shots those guys are getting what are pretty good looks for that type of a isolation player the good news is Brogdon missed close to the end of the regular season last year and was able to come back and be pretty effective in that Celtics series had some big moments in that series so he at least has experience in getting back into it although this will be in the heat of what's going to be a difficult second round matchup with perhaps these very same Sixers what did you make of this loss uh, 130 to 125 especially in the first half the most shocking thing to me was i my story going into this game was what shots does philadelphia take and what shots does milwaukee make them take you know like because milwaukee famously you know they don't get a lot they don't allow a lot of shots at the rim they also give up a really low percentage they give up threes but generally teams don't shoot particularly well on them and philadelphia while they have some better shooters now than they did before they still i mean they're very reliant on a few different guys to do it and overall in this individual game and this is why you don't use one game to project a series i i was shocked that philadelphia got i think largely the shots that milwaukee was comfortable with they just made more of them than i expected and i mean philly was 15 of 32 from three and only four of those three pointers were taken and made by jj reddick you know mb took 13 mike scott took six james ennis took four and I mean, the Sixers ended up with a, a, a stronger offensive rating the, than I would have expected, other than the fact that they got to the line 30 times, than I than I would have expected based on the shots they took. Yeah, the first half in particular, when the Sixers built that 10-point lead that the Bucks really weren't ever able to recover from, they didn't get it any closer than six until very late as they uh, attempted a miracle comeback. The Sixers were five out of 15 at the rim and then were well over 50% on jump shots. And Again, you mentioned that it wasn't Reddick necessarily who was killing them. Well, Reddick did have was six of seven at one point in the game and finished with 19 points on only 11 shooting possessions. But yeah, you mentioned Embiid taking 13. That's got to be a career high 13 three point attempts for him. I mean, that's like a Steph Curry type of number. They're definitely backing off of him. They're definitely backing off of Giannis as well as it turned out. But then the Bucks were getting up plenty of three point attempts. They finished at 16 out of 50. They had a late flurry to even get to that. At 16, I saw a point made that, oh, this is uh, Mo Dockle made this, and I respect Mo a lot, but I respectfully disagree with him. In this situation, he, he said this might be what it looks like when teams just let Giannis go crazy and guard everyone else. Well, they got up 53 point attempts. So they must not have been doing that great of a job of guarding everyone else. I mean, you know, Nicole Miritich is 0 for 6, Lopez was 3 for 9. You know, they had some pretty good shooters who weren't hitting much. I mean, there was one point in the game where Giannis was 3 for 8 and the rest of the team was like 
you know nine out of 37 or something now the bucks are prone to some difficult three-point shooting games they are not an unbelievable three-point shooting team they don't have anyone even lopez you know he's more of a mid-30s guy high volume guy space the floor guy you know really chris middleton is the only just and brogdon to a lesser extent although he doesn't take as many are the real deadly guys here actually Giannis, yeah go ahead sorry. sorry since you just brought up middleton i thought some of the other low-hanging fruit for the bucks in this game was that they didn't attack boban aggressively enough defensively you know the easy thing to, to do with Boban is just put him in a high screen and roll and yes Milwaukee's personnel isn't necessarily great for that but what they ended up doing was a lot of in the first quarter was a lot of Chris Middleton isos and you can you know if you do an iso drive or you're trying to get help or something else but he was basically just taking contested jump shots and now Chris Middleton is broadly speaking a great contested jump shot taker but that isn't really maximizing the opportunity that you have with Boban on and I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting there going, oh my God, Mike Budenholzer, he's a, you know, all, all his, he's losing coach of the year because he didn't attack this specific matchup on a single regular season game. I think that's something they will do a better job of should these teams face off in the playoffs. But Milwaukee, just like any other team, as the quality of opposition ramps up in the playoffs, they're going to have to do some of those like kind of cute or ruthless things to make sure that you maximize the easy shots and that you try to exploit advantage just matchups when they present themselves yeah i thought they did a better job in the second half they had Poban guarding Giannis and Giannis went right through him yeah that was of, a lot but that was a couple lot of and once i mean Giannis, it's pretty incredible I mean, he's getting away a little bit with some four-on push-offs on some of these plays but like he's just like getting ahead of steam knocking these centers back and like dunking on them uh you know i thought Embiid did the best job we've seen now pretty much every team is using the strategy i think denver might have been the first one to try it with mason Plumlee of just putting the center on Giannis and guarding brooke lopez with a smaller player brooke lopez didn't really get into the post at all he had one in this game where he was able to just put the guy in the goal so that's another option that they could maybe break out in a playoff series lopez especially with a lot of space around remains a very good post player that's just not something we've seen a lot of this year um i mean Giannis's line is worth discussing a lot a lot of it was kind of late when they were in no threes defense but 52 points 19 to 21 from the foul line that's big too i mean he's struggled at times from the foul line this year to hit that percentage three of eight from three although i mean he he could have taken 15 threes easily in this game the way they were backing off him but 15 to 26 from the field really just a, an outstanding game also had seven assists and only one turnover i mean with that kind of a load to only have one turnover is pretty remarkable the sixers that's their defensive achilles heels they don't force any turnovers at all with that conservative pick and roll style um i mean any reasons for concern here for the box space on this game or just a blip I think if it is more of a blip, I mean, one of the big questions for them that I've had is just how sustainable is their offense? And, you know, offensively, I think they did, considering, you know, I thought Middleton didn't have a great game and they're missing Mark Brogdon and all this stuff. I, I thought their offense looked better than I ex- actually expected it to look against Philly. And defensively, I think they'll figure some things out. I thought Philly hit shots that I wouldn't expect and all that kind of stuff. Something else I wanted to mention is that I thought DJ Wilson looked really good out there. I'm sure some people are going to focus on his offensive numbers, you know, 13 points, in 16 minutes, 5 of 8 from the field. But I thought he looked more comfortable defensively than I expected. Now, Philly has kind of a different hodgepodge, especially in the bench lineups, which is more often when DJ Wilson was out there. And I thought Wilson looked better at the at the 5 than the 4, which is broadly speaking how I felt about him. But I was really happy that he was out there and that he did well because, I mean, I think he's a, he's a part of what they do well and not, you know, the, a starter or anything like that. But it was good to, it was good to see him play well. Yeah, I, I that's true. I think it's interesting, though, that 
that the Bucks really only have one guy who plays that they want guarding Joel Embiid. And I don't think Brooke Lopez is an amazing option there. Um, as far as a one-on-one post defender, he's a little bit slow to guard Embiid to me. And then they haven't played Pogosol at all. He's only played 30 minutes and he has like a negative 24 net rating. And I, not that I'm advocating they should play Pogosol, but you wonder if Pogosol isn't going to play in this matchup when they don't have any other seven footer to guard Embiid. And, you know, Embiid always comes back in. He plays three stints. He comes back in when Lopez is out. So they're guarding him with like DJ Wilson and Ilyasova. Guys are just way too small to guard Embiid. And also, you know, Gasol wasn't getting going to get stretched out at all. Either the Sixers aren't a pick and roll team and those second units all have like either Simmons or McConnell out there or sometimes both so looking like he's not going to play a a ton here for them which is probably the right move I'm sure he's not entirely happy that he's only played 30 minutes and now he's completely out of the rotation um George Hill to me is a little bit of a concern too with Brogdon out quietly he just came back from a 10 game absence due to a groin injury quietly has been awful offensively for this team and he doesn't look to have much verb in his step I mean he looks to have taken even a step back from where he was last year in cleveland and only 50 percent true shooting shooting only 28 percent from three i think that'll get better he's been basically a 40 percent catch and shoot guy for the last five years now uh but he has definitely not been that good and one of the reasons we we're critical of that trade again we don't know where else they could have dumped that 20 million in salary that has them actually in position to re-sign everybody potentially this year but i didn't think hill was really going to help them that's kind of been true so far and you felt if they gave up that first round pick maybe they could have also gotten back someone who would have helped them in addition to dumping it but that was kind of a crappy pick and maybe cleveland was the only dumping ground available um how has miritich played where are his stats since uh coming over this was before today's game which is actually a good thing for miritich <laughs> he he was he's averaging 11 and a half points eight eight rebounds in about 23 minutes a game came off the bench in all but one game before today where he started 16 per you know 56 true shooting 20 usage those are all you know a little bit lower than what he did in new orleans but not that far off his career averages 30 percent on threes taking 13 per 100 possessions which is a little higher than previous seasons but not that much and we'll see where the rotation goes but he had played more of his time without Giannis than with him and i really like the potential fit of those two players together in a couple of different alignments and it'll take some time i mean there are a lot of diff- a lot of different configurations and even more now that malcolm brogdon is out so i, I think he's done pretty well overall and something else we should mention just before we move on from the bucks their perimeter rotation is also affected because both sterling brown and dante divincenzo have been dealing with with injury issues sterling brown hasn't played since late february divincenzo had played double he missed two months came back played a few games and then has missed the last two so the Connaughton got 25 minutes in this game we'll keep an eye on how the rest of that rotation goes and I mean they're going to need somebody and we don't know exactly who yeah with Tony Snell only playing eight minutes even with Brogdon out I think he might end up being the the best option still but Pat Connaughton's getting the first crack but he's only shooting 30 percent for three we mentioned Hill struggles I mean they basically got 48 minutes now that they've got to fill on the perimeter and you know not options that you feel amazing about there but ultimately i mean number one Giannis played 36 minutes and they're plus 12 in his minutes you know so he'll probably bump that up to 40 in the playoffs i thought that scouting wise they could have done a much better job of like not guarding mcconnell and you mentioned the boban thing i mean i think that i don't see the bench minutes being a huge strength for philly although maybe the staggering they do can make up for that 
And as you mentioned, you know, I mean, the Bucks still had much better shot quality than the Sixers in this game. Sixers ended up at 47% from downtown. So no, I don't think this game is a, a reason to panic. Sixers played well. They deserve a lot of credit. Embiid definitely could be a problem. He had 40 points of his own as we'll transition to Philly right now. But no, I, I don't think that this is a reason to fear Philly, the matchup with Philly, if, if you're the Buck necessarily. But, you know, it's looking like it's not necessarily going to be Philly anyway. Before I forget, it's we can talk about Philly's just overall stats they are 45 and 25 on the season seven and three since the last time we did this 10th in net rating at plus 3.2 10th in offense and 10th in defense that's pretty amazing to be 10th in all three things 538 projects them to finish third in the east with 53 wins and they're making the playoffs one cool stat malika andrews of espn had this in her piece uh, recapping today's game this was the first time in 35 years that players on opposing teams each had 35 and 15 which is pretty insane and both of those guys went well over the 35 part of it you know Giannis had 52 and Joel Embiid had 40 and I mean they're two just monstrous talents and two incredibly good players and Embiid you know like there's a, there's a reason why Toronto got Marcus Gasol at the deadline I mean he he is somebody uh, like in it a, a coaching and strategic imperative for every single team that faces Philly in the playoffs yeah, and it's interesting because I think if you can avoid fouling Embiid, which certainly easier said than done, but he's not like, you know, he's been better at it this year, but he's not just going to like put your ass in the goal every time. It's not going to be incredibly efficient. You know, he'll turn it over. He's really kind of more of a volume guy than he is just like an absolute, now his ability to, than he is just like an absolute offensive engine. Now you can generate a, a ton of shots, obviously. I think you might want to throw a few more shots to Tobias Harris this way. He only took seven field goal attempts in this one instead of the 31 that Embiid had but Embiid did only have one turnover in this game which was impressive six assists so uh, that's really good and of course uh, he was their best option at, on Giannis as well Giannis's quote after the game was yeah when I was guarded by Ben Simmons or whoever else I tried to really attack or Boban because uh, having Joel on him he, he thought that was more difficult what else did you have uh, uh, as we watched this game I'm trying to remember the term I think it was Serena Winters used it at one point about like the the quiet competition or something like that that's going on for the bench forward minutes that aren't yeah, going to Mike that, Scott. Brett Brown actually said. Oh, okay. I, I just, I saw her that, yeah. and it was just like, it's hilarious because it's it's a competition of a bunch of guys that are not playing well and continue to not play well. And so in this game, James Ennis got all of those minutes. He played 16 minutes, scored six points, you know, had, had a couple of weird plays. But I mean, Jonathan Simmons had, it looked like he had the early advantage, but he was so wretched offensively in Orlando this year. I kind of always thought the wheels were going to fall off that wagon and it appears that they have at least to some extent and at this point it would be hard for philly to really add quality at that position you know that maybe they could there's there are centers that are like you know kind of fringy guys that are available but there there is there are not wings because if there were wings they would be signed to another team and they are signed to another team so that's concerning for them tobias harris overall since he joined philadelphia 61 true shooting 21 usage i mean it's another one of those like kind of the diminishing returns of like you have a really good offensive player but there are just fewer shots for him to get but he's been efficient so you just kind of sit there and go well can the stagger solve some of this how is it going to work but also i mean we're just sitting here they haven't 
had a full opportunity to play their five-man lineup that's going to start and finish games that much together. So I don't want to read too much into it, but I mean, I think I'm going to be sitting there at various moments during these playoffs talking about how Tobias Harris is a better scoring option than the guys who have the ball in their hands. Yeah, although he's not maybe as good of a playmaking option. Absolutely. To be sure. And I mean, it really was the impede show. Butler had that one stretch in the fourth where he really dominated. He had 16 field goal attempts, then nobody else had more than 10 other than the aforementioned 31 by Embiid it occurred to me in the third quarter just how incredibly limited the Sixers bench guys are I mean this is they played four guys off the bench Mike Scott is probably the most well-rounded player of that group I mean, when you consider some of the brain farts that he'll have that's pretty remarkable to say but you know I mean he's playing 25 minutes a game for this group 41% from three of the only 35% from two which if you remember last year he was shooting at one of the greatest mid-range two shooting performances ever so that'll get better the three-point shooting will probably drop off a little bit so he's helping them offensively but defensively it does not bring a ton you know John Simmons was wasn't playing Jonah Bolden wasn't playing Amir Johnson wasn't playing you know those guys might all get some looks but certainly our, our flawed players McConnell we know he's pretty slow the lack of spacing is a problem Marjanovic actually was only one out of five in this game which is incredible he was at 71 percent true shooting for the year and certainly he's someone who can play well in some limited matchups but you know if you're going going to be in the second and third round of that Eastern Conference playoffs it's going to be tough for him and then uh, James Ennis is shooting it very poorly from three he's shooting like 25 percent for three he did hit two out of four today but he's like running away with that competition for the backup wing minutes uh, with John Simmons so it's a very limited group that I think it can be exploited and we'll see I mean I, I'm sure we're gonna have plenty of time to bang this drum and and that starting lineup is so good they're now six and one with those guys all healthy that maybe it just won't matter and maybe they can stagger them well enough but those guys all take something off the table for the guys that they're going to be staggered with when i say those guys i'm talking about the bench guys at this point um a couple other things on philly before we move on here zaire smith has actually returned he has now played seven games in the g league started one in delaware it's been a slow start for him not a surprise with him trying to get back into playing shape he has gained a, a bunch of weight he was down into like the, you know the 160s or something like that but he's back to playing weight now uh but only oh for seven on threes and and in seven games that's not amazing and only four free throw attempts in 140 minutes one steal and three blocks so he's uh struggled so far justin Patton also has been playing in, in the g league you recall that his third year option actually was declined he struggled with that broken foot in his career nothing else really standing about in his stat line other than 21 blocks in 10 games anything else on these guys or uh can we move on here we can move on oh we got to get to toronto here sorry raptors fans i know they're actually second in the conference right now but since philly and milwaukee played each other it seemed easier to just do philly now but i want to tell you that support for today's show comes from the no chill podcast which is hosted by our old friend gilbert arenas no chill perfectly describes it for a former all nba player with uh, a few opinions as you may remember from his playing days in each of these hour-long episodes gil and his co-host mike botticello continue to light it up just like arenas did in his playing career with guests like kevin durant nick young mike Barr, mike Barn. what is wrong with mike Barn? how about matt Barn? pretty interesting uh in his own right ice cube and many other guests coming soon all of them have their unique raw unfiltered perspectives on the game who's playing the personalities involved and everything in between they'll also dig into hot topics trends and burning questions the no chill podcast is available everywhere you get your podcast you can hear new episodes every monday or listen a day early on himalaya that would be on sundays the toronto raptors 49 and 
and 21 after another rough loss to former head coach Dwayne Casey and the Pistons today but still at 49 and 21 5 and 4 though since the last 15 and 60 Milwaukee hasn't been killing it uh, Toronto actually could have maybe gotten back into the mix for the number one seed they're also perhaps the more interesting race for them is with the Warriors for a potential home court advantage in the NBA finals net rating is fourth in the NBA at 5.0 but they're clustered around with a bunch of other different teams seventh on offense sixth on defense projecting now for 58 wins after that loss in Detroit they have made the playoffs you saw Toronto in person as they waxed the Pelicans in New Orleans about a week ago Uh, what did you see from them beyond the basics that since Drew Holiday you know it wasn't didn't play AD didn't play Toronto had the massive talent advantage the most engaging part of the game was how Pascal Siakam and Julius Randle largely guarded each other and those two guys are perfectly suited to making the other guy kind of look bad because Pascal Siakam just has so much energy he's pushing the ball and Randall you know Randall was was playing hard but it's it's hard to deal with Pascal Siakam that's just what he is and then on the other end Julius Randall's just I mean Siakam's a wonderful defender but Randall's so damn strong that he was causing problems Randall ended up with 18 points on 6 to 15 but he was just just getting through the Raptors and some of the some of New Orleans best moments were Julius Randall just tearing stuff up Frank Jackson also looked pretty good for them but just the overall talent level of the Raptors did shine through why just they didn't have anybody to stop him he was efficient and it's like Kawhi Kawhi has these games kind of like Kevin Durant does where he's very effective I mean in this one Kawhi 33 points on 21 shots in 36 minutes but it never really feels like it's their game like oh my god they took it over we just talked about Giannis and and Joel Embiid in that one and I think really, though, the story was that Toronto just has more talent, has more horses than the shorthanded Pelicans did, and they got some good play from their bench. And now they even have Fred Van Vliet back. He returned. He was actually warming up, kind of doing some passing stuff for that game, so I thought he was going to be back soon. Came back on Sunday, played 31 minutes, and closed the game in that loss to the Pistons. You also got to see Jeremy Lin's first three-pointer as a Raptor. I did. It was a piece of history that I was not aware of, but, uh, you know, sitting on press row with Eric Kareen and, and some of the Raptors press, I hadn't realized that he had, he had missed all those. It, it was a real struggle point for him. Missed his first 17 as a Raptor, 5 of 17 since then, which is meaningfully better than 0 of 17. And... Something that is concerning, this is before today's game, Toronto only has a basically a 102 offensive rating in Lynn's non-garbage time minutes. That's not great. Now, we're dealing with small enough sample sizes that I'm not going to read too much into that, and really, his primary job was filling in, being a gap filler for FVV. Now, he can still play. You know, the Raptors have done two-point guard lineups plenty over the last couple of years. But the burden on Lynn, as soon as Lowry gets back from this left ankle sprain, will be much more manageable. Yeah, I think they were hoping, and he was hoping, that he could be more effective than that. But if he's not going to hit shots... I mean, their offensive performance with him on the floor has been atrocious. And their bench has struggled all season. But, you know, he's played some minutes with the Stars as well. And a 102 offensive rating in his non-garbage time minutes is just not going to cut it. Van Bleet did come back, played 31 minutes against Detroit. Marcus Gasol has played much better than Jeremy Lin has. 13 games now coming into today against Detroit started six of them so Nick Nurse much like he did with Valanciunas and Ibaka although he really settled on just about always using Ibaka I don't think that's going to be the case any longer so Gasol started six games that really has seemed to be matchup dependent 
He closed uh, against Detroit in a, a previous game. I didn't see today's game. Ibaka closed it against Houston. It seems like generally he is starting the guy he feels like is the better matchup. Yusuf Nurkic, they started Gasol. I'm guessing in the playoffs against the other three teams that are probably going to matter, Boston, Milwaukee, and Philly, I think against Boston, Milwaukee, Ibaka likely starts, and Gasol certainly would start against Philly and Joel Embiid. So 9.4 points, 6.2 rebounds, and probably the biggest number, 3.6 assists in just 23 minutes a game. Ibaka is on that three-game suspension right now. Um, Gasol has not been particularly efficient shooting the ball. He's only 10 of 34 on jumpers in the half court. So it really has been just not hitting the jump shot. He's been reasonably effective in the post, though. That's his largest play type, 28% of the time. The big thing he's been doing is when he gets the ball in the left block, especially when he's playing with the second unit, he's been effective there. He's 7 for 7 on hook shots coming across the lane from the left block. That's why right-handed players like to get the ball on the left side, especially old-school guys like to be able to sweep across the lane with that hook shot. Uh, on the right block, he's only 1 out of 8 from the field. Uh, the other thing that I've noted, it, getting back to his passing, is I think that really helps their secondary break. Ibaka, not known for his decision-making. We saw in his first playoffs with the Raptors, he really failed in that role against Cleveland when Cleveland was trapping. Gasol, not going to put a ton of pressure on the rim if he gets the ball in a trap situation or a short roll situation, but he's going to make the right decision most of the time, and he's going to make that decision very quickly. So you see that they'll just give the ball to him in the secondary break at the top of the key, let him move it to the weak side, go set a screen, DHO action, guys can cut back door, and he'll make good decisions, which is not an element that they had. I think they really, Lowry is the only, eh, maybe Van Vliet to some extent, the only really good passer on this team. They didn't have any type of big man who was able to do much facilitating. Valanciunas kind of got shoehorned into that role and grew as a passer, but you know it's not on the level of Marcus Gasol. And then teams are also guarding him out at the three-point line, even though he hasn't hit it amazingly well so far. One thing we haven't seen a ton of him do yet is pick and pop. He's actually more possessions rolling to the rim where he just doesn't really have the explosion to be incredibly effective as a roll man. You know, I think that's where Ibaka is better. You know, I, I still, what do you think? If you just had to say, hey, you know what, just in a vacuum, who gives them a better chance to win at the end of games between Gasol and Ibaka, you know, assuming that it's not, you know, they're not going up against Joel Embiid in the post, like, you know, just more of a standard type of matchup. They're still adjusting to Gasol's passing, but I think there is a little bit more that they can do. And Toronto, it's not like they're pushing the ball offensively anyway, you know, like they're when they get into kind of the Kawhi mode offensively and, you know, Siakam can still do Siakam things out there. And I've really liked the the chemistry that's been developing between Marcus Gasol and Kyle Lowry. And so right now, I'd probably say it's still Ibaka just as they're getting there. But if I had to project a month out, I'm going to say Marcus Gasol. Yeah, and this is a team that for all their offensive talent, you know, they're not getting a lot of system buckets, you know, and I think Gasol could help there. He gives them something to do to get away from this kind of Kawhi ball approach. All right, who do we got next here, Boston? Actually, we do not because of the way that it is in records right now. We have the Indiana Pacers, who are still the four seed in the Eastern Conference. They are remarkable, 44-26, and 4-6 and six since last 1560, so a little bit less remarkable than that's right. Eighth in net rating, 
15th in offense, 4th in defense, and they're projected to, to win 49 games, which would put them behind Boston in 5th by by 2. They are going to make the playoffs, of course. And, I mean, I've heaped praise, justifiably, both of us have, on Nate McMillan. I think he's done a wonderful job this year. The fact that they are still in this, that they're still ahead of the Celtics by a full game is, is awfully impressive. And that's actually the main thing I wanted to talk about for them is, I mean, I'm still evaluating, and especially because they've been dealing with injuries, you know, um, Tyreek has missed a bunch of time actually due to personal reasons as well, and Sabonis is, has with this ankle issue, which he's back now. But I'm trying to figure out how Pritchard and their front office process what has happened since Oladipo got hurt, because there are a couple of different ways you can do it. One is, hey, we have this wonderful group of players. Look at how well they did. We've been missing the guy who was the straw that stirs the drink. They've been able to put it together. Look how great these guys are. That is a reasonable, justifiable interpretation of the facts. There is another one, which is with the system that we have and the coaching staff and the talent that is locked in on contracts, Miles Turner, Oladipo when he comes back and all these other things, that maybe they could go in different directions and still succeed. And the reason that matters is because they have large cap holds in guys like Thaddeus Young and Bo- and Bojan Bogdanovich. And so unlike some other teams, Indiana really can't split the baby. I think they either need to largely bring the band back together or retool. And some of that is supply dictated because it's, you know, who's going to say yes to you if it's not those guys. But the other reason why it matters is because Bogdanovich and Young and whatever they do at point guard, those guys are all going to want and receive lucrative contracts for multiple years. You can't really run it back for one year. And I'm fascinated to see how their front office interprets what they've done. Yeah, and your other problem there, too, is that you're going to be paying for career years from Bogdanovich in particular, arguably a career year from Thad Young, Darren Collison. All those guys are going to be into their early 30s on this next contract. Do you want to say, hey, you know what, this is a chance to reload? I know Thad Young and, and Bogdanovich have been really good. But we've still got Oladipo. He'll hopefully be back next year. We've got Miles Turner. We've got Sabonis, who needs to get into a larger role. Although the idea of giving big money to both of them is a little bit concerning. Maybe you say we need just a a better offensive option at the four. My guess is that they're going to try to bring everyone back, and maybe it'll get too expensive. But this isn't a team that's shown a ton of spending discipline in the past. Maybe that's not true. I think they did a a decent job with Collison and Bogdanovich in that summer of 2017 to get those non-guarantees on the second year. But in a more competitive market, we'll see. But so much, of course, depends on, on how they finish this season. If they end up getting swept by Boston or something in the first round, if they get the fifth seed, you know, if they continue on this type of four and six path the rest of the way to where that first month or so without Oladipo looks like a blip, then that could affect the thinking as well. Teams seem to have adjusted to what Bogdanovich is doing now with him being higher on the scouting report, taking away his right hand. Um, but you know, they've been competitive still. They, they had a rough loss in Denver. Although they were, they were down and made it kind of a miracle comeback, had a chance to win it in the final seconds down to the play was for Bogdanovich to come off a, a fake screen by Wes Matthews and shoot a three. I thought he could have turned the corner and maybe gone for the tying layup, but he got a pretty decent look at that three. That's what the math really says. And good on Nate McMillan, who's not known as a math friendly coach to try and go for the three and win it at the end. Something that's concerning for me with Indiana is that other than the the win over Oklahoma City on Thursday, the games they played against 
capable opposition have largely gone pretty badly for them. I mean, I thought they should have beaten Orlando. They lost that game by five. They got waxed by the Bucks and the Pacers, or sorry, not the Pacers, but in the Sixers. And now they have a bunch of good teams coming up. They play Portland, Clippers, Warriors, OKC, and Boston all on the road before the end of March. So this, no matter what happens the rest of the season, this is a spectacular story. And I think I understand why the 538 projection has them finishing behind the Celtics. And I don't want to take anything away from it, but I would love to be proven wrong, but I don't expect to be. Quickly, Wes Matthews, uh, who joined the team, of course, on the buyout market, started all 14 games that he has played, really doing about what would have been expected, which is shoot high 30s from threes, 39% on 89 attempts, not really shoot that well from two, lower usage maybe than might have been expected, about 16% capable defense, if not stopper level of defense on the wing. So he's been about what he was supposed to be for this team. All right, now let's move to the Boston Celtics. Let's do it. The Celtics are 43 and 27, 6 and 4 since the last 1560. They're third in net rating, plus 5.1, ninth in offense, fifth in defense. 538 projects them to win 51, which would put them in fourth. And there was a lot of consternation about the Celtics. They had this really rough stretch. And then all of a sudden, they beat the ever-loving crap out of the Golden State Warriors. And that was a big part of what became a 3-1 and California road trip, 6-2 and in the month of March. It is worth noting that the Celtics have done, they've made hay against largely bad teams. I mean, so in March, they're 5-0 and against non-playoff teams and 1-2 and against playoff teams, the one win being that huge just blowout ass kicking over the Warriors. And so I don't, I don't want to go, you know, overboard about, oh, the Celtics are back and all this kind of stuff. But to me, they've just, they've, they've looked better overall, though. I mean, you see games like the two just knockdown dragouts they played with the Kings where you're sitting there going, you know, they haven't figured it all out, but they do look better overall. No, everything's fine because they bonded together on one plane flight like that. That's completely fixed their issues, right? I mean, that's just one of those like, yeah, you you get some access and you can write about that. And it's interesting. And maybe everyone's happier and Kyrie's in a better mood. And but do I want to say that that's the reason why they're playing better? I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, and whether, you know, no one would be talking about that if they hadn't had that that huge win against the Warriors. Then they got blown out against the Clippers and Kyrie was very complimentary of uh, old Celtics coach Doc Rivers. Maybe he's going to L.A. now, the L.A. Clippers. Um, Jalen Brown has started playing a lot better. Bontemps said that he's arguably been their first, third best player since those first couple months uh, of the season. I'm not sure I would go that far, but he's getting his efficiency back to a broad league average, a, a little bit lower. About the same usage, actually, as Jason Tatum now. One thing that's actually impressive is that he's lowered his turnover percentage down in 9.7. That has helped uh, quite a bit. I think he's a better defensive player than Tatum at, at this point. I remember last year, one of the funny things we got asked all the time on the NBA cast was Braun versus Tatum, and that was actually a real question. Really, the only thing that has been a big difference for Braun compared to last season is that he shot 33% instead of 39% from three, and his free throw attempts are down as well in terms of his overall stat line. But it's looking actually relatively similar now. Still not the greatest finisher at the rim. You would really like to see more of that from him. Is Brown versus Tatum, is that still even remotely a question as far as like who you'd rather have going forward? I mean, I've always been higher than Brown and probably lower on Tatum 
than many. Is that like a crazy question or is it still like clearly Jason Tatum at this point? So I think Tatum has been a better player overall, but there is a reasonable argument to be made that Jalen Brown, he just, there are certain teams that he just would fit more seamlessly on. You know, like Tatum, he's a wonderful complimentary piece. I mean, we'll, we'll see exactly where his game goes, but I agree with you. I prefer Brown's defense to Tatum's defense personally, but I love that Jason Tatum can just go out and get his the way that he did. I mean, I've been really impressed. Like I've talked about the, like the connective tissue in Tatum's game is something that I really appreciate. So I, I understand. I mean, there's a reason why you were really high on Jalen Brown in the first place and you were higher on him than I was. And I haven't, I mean, we did that draft recap podcast and I'm still, that class I'm still kind of trying to process because it's so, so heinously awful overall, but I still like what Jalen Brown can be. And he's, this is his age 22 season. I mean, there's a lot that can be figured out there. So I would have Tatum over Brown pretty clearly right now, but I will not say that it is a foregone conclusion that it will always be that way, though I think some would be more comfortable stating that than I am. I think Tatum clearly has the higher offensive ceiling. Uh, Brown at this point, yeah, he's... uh... Brought together a little bit, but probably going to be more of a transition score, closeout attacker, spot up three pointer, maybe the occasional post up against a smaller guard type of player. You know, I, I don't think he has quite the level of moves that Tatum does. Not that same smooth mid range jump shot that Tatum does, but I think it's quite possible that Braun turns out to be the better player. I think you would take Tatum because of the higher ceiling as a scorer and creator. Although Tatum has kind of had his own problems uh, as a passer of late, but I think Braun and also. Also, Tatum is a better spot-up shooter than Brown, and the free throw percentage would support that as well. So I think offensively, I think it's very clear that Tatum is superior. Maybe Brown's defense can get him into that conversation to be valuable on some teams. But I think it's not impossible that Brown will have a better career, but that would involve, I think, Tatum disappointing. And maybe the odds of that are higher than some people would like to believe. But generally, I mean, I've said this before that I'm all about ceiling. And while Braun is very athletic, I think it's more likely that he's going to move into really a supporting role, though I think he can play aspects of that role very well. The only other thing I'll add in is that while I think Jalen Brown, I I like his defensive game better, Brown is not so great defensively that he really, like, to me, that marginal advantage is not as significant as the marginal advantage between them as offensive players, especially when you account for the increased value of self-created opportunities. So what do you think it would be a reasonable contract extension for Brown next year? And I think this is an important question now, because if we're thinking about his trade value, now you're thinking about him really you have one more year on the rookie deal and now you're going to have him on whatever he's going to extend for or get in restricted free agency i mean is he a 20 million dollar a year player potentially going forward i mean that's probably what he's going to be looking for i would imagine positional scarcity does really go in his favor i mean i mean look, i look at Otto porter as a pretty good example now porter fills a different role and i mean there, and it was a different world when Otto porter signed but i could see him looking for that because i could see another team just being like holy crap you know like look, Harrison Barnes, you know, the, the, he's going to, he has that $25 million option for next year. Granted, that's a little bit different, but how, I mean, I'm thinking of him more in the kind of like low end starter range, like just because of risk mitigation, like he, I think that he could and hopefully will be better than that, but to commit to it a year early when you have match rights and I'm very much about, you know, like force the guy to get paid. And the other reason why, you know, for Boston, I would probably go a little bit lower that I would go lower than 20 is because 
they need to figure out maybe maybe between now and October they'll, they'll these questions will be answered. I would expect that actually that they will be, but they need to know exactly where this team is going. And you are trying to vet, get you know if you can pa- if you can get a contract that passes the Nene <coughs> test by all means. You know if you if you can do that, and I uh, I understand going from that position of strength, but pushing beyond that, then you're saying okay we're locking into this guy and we don't really know exactly where this team is going. And if you think that there's a possibility it's a negative value then it makes it harder to pivot in case you want to do that. The Detroit Pistons are next, right? They absolutely are. They are the only other team in the Western Conference that or Eastern Conference that is above 500. They are after their win today, they are 33 and 36. They are No, 30 36, 36 and, 33, and 36 right? and 33. I know how, I know how how things work. Um they're 8 and 3 since the last 15 and 60. Still slight negative net rating, which puts them 15th, 21st in offense, 12th in defense. 538 projects them to finish with the 6th best record, which makes sense cuz they also have an easier schedule than the Brooklyn Nets. They're going to make the playoffs. And it looks to me, especially after the results of the last couple days, that they are clearing a pretty pretty reasonable path to the sixth seed. They're still well behind the Pacers and Celtics, so they can't get to the five. And not only are they three games ahead of the Nets in the loss column, but they have an easier schedule. So, you oh, know, yeah. is, there, is there a difference between the the six and the seven yeah we don't know exactly what it's going to be because we don't know who is going to be in which spot but i mean i'm a little bit disappointed you you tweeted this out during the day today that we're probably not going to see a toronto detroit series in the first round because detroit has played toronto really well but if it ends up being sixers pistons that's one hell of a consolation prize yeah i mean you've got the drummond Embiid matchup which Embiid has largely dominated in his career but it would have been nice to see Dwayne Casey going against his old charges in Toronto. And I think Casey deserves a ton of credit for what he's been able to do with this team. They did have about a 15-game run as the number one team in the NBA in net rating over those 15 games. That was driven in part due to 41% three-point shooting during that period. And then they had two games where they scored 75 and 74 points and went something like, I should know the stat off the top of my head because I tweeted it, but something like you know 15 out of 75 on three-pointers in those two games, but did, of course, right the ship with that nice win against Toronto today. Let's talk about what the guys they have acquired at and since the trade deadline have done in a Detroit uniform. The, the most notable addition was Wayne Ellington, who was bought out in Phoenix, and they brought him in. Very similar situation to Wes Matthews. He has started 12 of 14 games before today, averaging 10 points, two rebounds in 25 minutes a game. He's taking a similar three-point attempt rate to what he did in his years in Miami, 13 threes per under possessions, making 39% of them. He is taking 83% of his shots from beyond the arc, which is truly incredible. And he has a 57% true shooting, but only 16% usage. That has been a part of the Wayne Ellington story at different parts in the process. He did have some higher usage time, I believe, as a member of the Heat. I think it was one year he was. But I don't know. I, I think he's looked good. And Detroit, you know, after they traded Re- Reggie Bullock, they needed somebody. And I think Wayne Ellington has been, you know, he was a part of that nice stretch that they had. Thon Maker, he's been coming off the bench. Not surprisingly, they have Andre Drummond. Five points a game, three rebounds and a block in 16 minutes a game. Hasn't been shooting the ball particularly well. You know, 46% true shooting on 16% usage. So about the same usage as Wayne Ellington, which is notable because Wayne Ellington is, is a way better offensive player. But they're operating, obviously, in very different roles. 
And something that's always been frustrating for me with Thonmaker, albeit not necessarily surprising, is he's been such a bad defensive rebounder. You know, is 16% in Detroit so far, 17% or 18% for this season, but was 14 last year. And if your center is just that awful of a defensive rebounder and not a great box out guy. And I, when I've watched Thon, I don't think like, oh, this is, you know, Steven Adams clearing out space for Russell Westbrook. I don't see that with him. So, you know, what his what the rest of his NBA, like the next stage of his NBA career looks like is going to be a question. But, you know, he is a a, a capable-ish option for them. Yeah, he's actually played 60% of his minutes at the four where they haven't really had much of an option either. He's playing alongside Pachulia in a lot of those alignments. But I still think he could be capable defensively. You mentioned the defensive rebounding issues. I think moving on from him is part, you know, in addition to all the other changes they've made. But that's part of why the Bucks have been better on the defensive glass this year. He is playing power forward. Pachulia gets a lot of defensive rebounds as well but he's got to just make more shots you know i mean he really part of why we're so high on him was he made a ton of shots as a rookie and the ball just hasn't gotten in for him really these last couple of years sweet mccallick has only played 20 minutes so not a ton to talk about with him blake griffin's defense is something that's gotten a little bit of attention lately with the idea being that teams are going to start really attacking him in the playoffs as a switch defender i think he's capable if not amazing his big problem is he has these short arms so if he gets switched on to someone who can shoot a jump shot and has any type of size he's just not gonna be able to challenge that because his arms are so short but i have seen him move his feet pretty well when he really does lock in and try to get into a stance and of course he's got pretty decent strength i mean he did get completely obliterated on that one dunk by Giannis a bit ago but Giannis is going through basically the entire league right now from a strength standpoint I think Blake can hold up against most guys it's just if someone's going to bomb a mid-ranger or or a three over him he's going to struggle I think his greater issues are as a help guy especially from an effort standpoint at least he's not having to carry as ridiculous of a load as he did earlier in the season with Reggie Jackson having come on shooting the ball better from three of late Drummond hasn't necessarily been the offense engine. In fact, I think part of why he's been playing better during this run recently is that he stopped with the post-ups, but he's having one of the better stretches of his career as well. So maybe Blake can give him a little bit more defensively, but I don't see him. I mean, he has bad moments to be sure. I don't see him as a huge one-on-one liability. He does have to switch out on the perimeter more than he did say when he was a clipper. It's really more as a help guy that I think he runs into problems we ready for Brooklyn? Let's do it. The Nets are in even 36 and 36, 5 and 6 since the last time we hit them. 17th in net rating, 18th in offense, 15th in defense. 538 projects them to win 39 games and finish 7th in the East. They have an 82% chance of making the playoffs. And the reason why they're they're projected to only win three more games the rest of this year is because their schedule is completely ridiculous. They only play, I mean, we'll see how teams are at different stages in the process, but they really only play two or so games against, they're playing two against non-playoff teams, but Sacramento is still trying. I mean, Sacramento... I would favor them in one game their entire rest of the season. Yeah, and and they're facing a lot of really good teams. I mean, at Portland, at 
Philly, at Milwaukee, at Indiana. Like their their home games left are Boston, they, they Milwaukee, actually, Toronto, and Miami. That's nasty. I'm sorry. I would favor them in two potentially because the Lakers uh, they play at the Lakers. Um, I would favor Friday. them. I would favor them in that game. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how much the Lakers are trying. I mean, they just lost to the Knicks, and we'll see whether LeBron is uh, being load managed. To, at that point or not and then they play at home against Miami in the season finale so I mean that that's that could be a huge game Miami really looks like their only competition Charlotte lost again today I mean while the Nets are only projected to win three more games and I, I mean I said I would only favor them in one or maybe two you know statistically you're just likely to pick up a win here or there or you know certainly there could be a resting situation especially that at Miami game uh, on April 6th you could see Indiana may have nothing to play for as well down the end. Toronto, Toronto actually, I mean, they, those three games against Toronto, Milwaukee, and Indiana at the end, I mean, all of those teams could have their destiny pretty much figured out by that point. So uh, I do think that's, uh, I mean, it is crazy that they play, what is it, six straight against the top four, five teams in the East before Miami. I know you talked about that a little bit already, but that's, uh, so they'll definitely be rooting for some of those teams to win and some of those teams to lose and for as much distance between all of them as possible going into that stretch. I, I do think they'll hold on against Miami. They don't have the tiebreaker against Miami, uh, but they could tie them. I think they're pretty close in conference record uh, as well. I'm sure we'll get more into that uh, as it gets closer. One way they could have really helped solidify things is by winning tonight against the Clippers, a crazy game. They led by 19 with eight minutes remaining in the second quarter. Gave up a 33-9 to run and actually trailed by five at the half, then ended up going down 13, fought back, but then with a minute two remaining, trailed by 10, 116-106. They tied the game with six seconds left. Here's how they did it. Pretty much a clinic by the Clippers on how to blow a lead, especially by Montrezl Harrell. First, Spencer Dinwiddie gets fouled going around a ball screen. He does the throw up the the shot. Wanted three foul shots, got two, but made both of them. Then they pressed, and this is always a good strategy when you're in this kind of three possessions down type of a mode in the last couple of minutes is press, and then usually they'll throw it to one of the guys who isn't the greatest foul shooter. And so if you don't get the turnover, you'll probably have a chance to foul someone who's not a great foul shooter. And sure enough, Harold missed two free throws. Then Russell hits a three off a pick and roll. Doc Rivers gets a timeout to, in part because Harold didn't get up high enough to take away the three, which is, you know, really, as long as they're hitting twos, you don't really care because you assume you're going to get fouled and, and hit some foul shots going the other way. I really liked what Atkinson did from a coaching standpoint. First of all, Rivers just advanced the ball, didn't do what you always advocate, which is try to get the ball inbounds first. Clips get a five-second violation because Atkinson put in all wing-sized players, basically, and had them switch everything. So they denied the ball, got a five-second violation. Gallo was saying he called a timeout, but you could tell it was in the back of his mind, like, all right, do I really want to use our last timeout? And he kind of waited. Then Harrell ends up getting switched out on Damari Carroll. Carroll drives by him. This is still a five-point game at this point. And Harrell ends up getting faked into the air and then coming down and slapping Carroll, but not hard enough to prevent the end one. So now it's a two-point game and they didn't even have to foul. Patrick Beverly airballs an open corner three against a net zone defense. They go no timeout to attack the Clippers 
defense liabilities who are in there, including Lou Williams, run a, a double drag screen. Harrell screws up the communication with Pat Beverly. Jared Allen gets right to the rim and Russell with a great pass and Allen gets a dunk to tie it with five seconds left. But they had their hearts broken by Lou Williams. Brooklyn actually went into a zone. Atkinson said afterwards that their plan was to try to deny Williams the ball. But because of the way the Clippers lined up, they couldn't do that. Williams got a screen from Gallo, gets to the middle of the floor. Dinwiddie did a nice job getting over it. D'Angelo Russell probably could, who, you know, probably shouldn't be in the game at, at that point. Yeah, he's their all-star, but defense-only possession, you probably have some better options there. It wasn't terrible defense. I mean, Lou hit an incredible fading 29-footer from the top of the, the arc going to his left. Uh, but, you know, with one second left, maybe Russell could have double-teamed and, and forced it into an even harder shot. It wasn't bad defense, though. And Clippers win, and Nets, uh, after an amazing 10-point comeback in the last minute, fall to that 36-36 and 36 record. A couple other quick notes on Brooklyn. Alan Crabb had his knee drained after soreness developed, so we'll have to, of course, keep an eye on that. He yeah, had, and remember, that's the one he missed like two months with. Right, and yeah, I mean, he was dealing with that, and he had been, you know, starting when he was healthy, and so we'll have to do that. And then I had pulled the stats just because this is something I've been interested in all year, and I'm going to say at the beginning and at the end of this that these are not an apples-to-apples comparison because they're playing with and against different lineups, but... The Nets have a positive net rating when Dinwiddie plays without Russell. They also have a 113 offensive rating. And then when Russell plays without Dinwiddie, that 113 drops down to 108, and they're slightly below water, you know, slightly above to slightly below when it's Russell there. And then when Russell and Dinwiddie play together, they're a 108 net rating, or 108 offensive rating, so basically the same as with D'Angelo out there, and negative 2.2 net rating. Now, it's worth noting that the Russell plus Dinwiddie minutes are usually crunch time, and so that means you're playing against another team's best five. Dinwiddie plays more with the backup, so he's playing against weaker talent. But I don't know. It, it, it goes along. I, I, I respect what D'Angelo Russell has done this season, but I, as people who have longtime listeners of the show know, for me, it's always if you're a point guard, it's about does the team succeed offensively when you're on the floor? And yeah, sometimes there are situational factors, but I'm still skeptical that D'Angelo Russell is, is the rising tide that is lifting their boats. Well, the rising tide that can lift the boat that is your company is Capterra. If you go back to 1989, Michael Jordan had a string of like 10 straight triple doubles when he played point guard, averaged 32, 8, and 8 that year. We've come a long way since then, so you probably shouldn't be using software that looks like it's from 1989. You can find the right software for your business at Capterra.com, which is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. They've got over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users. They have everything that you need to make an informed decision. You can search more than 700 categories of software from project management to email marketing, no matter what your business needs. Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Visit captera.com slash capspace. Easy to remember that slash capspace URL because we talk about Catspace very often in the program, although eh, maybe not as much during this period here in March as we're gearing up for the playoffs. Captera.com slash Catspace, C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A, Captera.com slash Catspace. Let them know that slash Catspace URL that you came from us. Who is next here? The Miami Heat. The Heat are the current eight seed. They are 33 and 36, 7 and 4 since the last 15 and 60. Slight negative net rating puts them 16th, 23rd in offense, a strong 7th in defense, and 538 actually projects them to finish tied with the Orlando Magic for the eight seed. And 
there, I mean, Miami's dealing with, with dealing with some injury issues. Justice Winslow missed the game, the win that they had over the Charlotte Hornets due to a thigh bruise. Dwayne Wade had a rough fall, and I believe it was the previous game. He had a bruised hip, but he did play 28 minutes. Dragic played 28 minutes. And something that I wanted to start with, we'll talk about the game they played with Charlotte. And that actually, it's, it's appropriate because those are the eight and, and, and nine teams right now in terms of record. Oh, sorry, actually, Orlando's in the middle of that. But, there, but anyway, we'll talk about it. Um, but so I wanted to figure out, because I mean, I I personally enjoy watching Miami significantly more when Bam is in the starting lineup, but I'm like, okay, how are they different? How are they similar? And so the guy I used as the proxy was Josh Richardson. And it kind of tells a story that feels right to me, where they have a similar net rating when Whiteside plays with Richardson and when Bam plays with them, but they're a better offensive team and a worse defensive team with Bam. And I don't know, that feels about right to me. Yeah, Whiteside has been coming off the bench since a, a recent injury absence. Uh, they've played better with Bam and Olenek in the starting lineup. I thought the most notable takeaway from their victory over the Hornets, a 93-75 to win. They outscored the Hornets 32-15 in the final frame, and the Hornets scored a mere 21 points over the last 18 minutes of the game. Wait, one quick stat crazy on that. The highest scoring quarter Charlotte had in this game was 21 points. Yeah, I mean, we've actually seen some teams have some really rough games, and Charlotte fumbled their way to 7 of 36 three-point shooting. But I thought the biggest thing in this game was Kemba Walker was held at 10 points on 4 of 16, did not get to the foul line. And the Heat broke out some old-school Miami Heat tactics from back in the LeBron days of especially with Bam blitzing every pick and roll involving Walker and getting it out of his hands. Walker ended up with three turnovers, but really just it seemed like he had almost lost heart by the end of the game. And there's one play where he finally got the ball on a closeout, had an opening, and Josh Richardson just took it from him as he went by and then uh, ended up causing a a tie-up. But the Heat looked great, and Charlotte really had no answers for the tactic, especially when it was out of bio. But even Whiteside was able to get out on the floor a little bit. I shouldn't say they had no answers, because they started flipping the angle of the screen, and especially when it was Whiteside or Olenek, those guys weren't quite quick enough to get over to the new side of the flip screen. But even then, Walker was running into all kinds of traffic. The Heat also got 15 offensive rebounds. Miles Bridges got the ultra Keith Bogans in this game with 10 minutes. And even though he started and he was taken out in the first half when they got four offensive rebounds in a row. And so James Borrego went with Jeremy Lamb and said, I'm kind of leeching into the Hornets here, but there's a, a lot of overlap, of course. The other thing that was really notable was pretty much the entire time that Kaminsky was in the game for Charlotte. He was their backup center. They started Biombo with Cody Zeller out with uh, missing his third straight with knee soreness. Again, he had that had multiple procedures now, or, or at least multiple injuries uh, on that knee. And, you know, I think it's going to be an issue for the rest of his career, unfortunately. They certainly really need him. So Biombo is starting. He's obviously a huge offensive liability. And then Kaminsky is a huge defensive liability. So they actually just played a 2-3 zone. I was impressed, actually. They held the Heat to 2-17 from three in the first half. And, yeah, they missed some open looks. But I thought that the way that zone was coached up was actually pretty good. You know, it was a 2-3 zone. But then they also had Kaminsky coached up 
to, although he's playing center, get out on the perimeter if some sort of a situation occurred where they're about to give up a wide open three. And generally, if that was the case, it's because the three-point line was a little overloaded compared to the number of defenders out there. So they didn't actually end up getting hurt. And then one of the corner guys uh, would usually retreat back and cover for him. I I thought they did pretty well. It wasn't because of that zone that they lost. I mean, especially with Kaminsky at center, they really need to protect him in pick and roll, not allow as much penetration because he's really powerless as a rim protector. So I thought that actually looked pretty good for the Hornets. I mean, it was, and they really only ended up getting burned in the second half because Dwayne Wade and Deion Waiters hit six difficult contested three-pointers. Uh, Adebayo looked really good in this one. His grab-and-go game w- was working pretty much every time he did that. Something good ended up happening. For the Heat, uh, there was one time when Waiters had hit a couple of tough threes in a row. Adebayo got a rebound, started dribbling up. Waiters, like, theatrically ran into the backcourt to try to get the ball. Adebayo didn't give it to him. But then they ended up finding Waiters later in the possession. He jacked up another difficult three and actually was uh, able to make that one, too, uh, as the Heat got back into it in the third quarter. James Johnson. Was brought in because Justice Winslow missed this one with a thigh bruise, as you mentioned. Rodney Magruder still didn't play much. Instead, Derek Jones played pretty well in this one, had three blocks. I mean, he's on his way, I think, Danny, to turning into a, a defensive problem if he doesn't kill himself first. So there are players in the league, including Derek Rose and Derek Jones's teammate Dwayne Wade, who I consider scary fallers. You know, like they just take a lot of tough falls. Like there, are, there are guys that are like that in the league. I mean, Wade's been that for years. Rose in those years, especially when he was playing at an MVP level. Derek Jones Jr. is a scary faller, but what's way more terrifying about him is that he's a scary jumper. Like there was a play early on in this game. It was a two-on-one fast break. And ah, I, I wish I remember, it, w- it was probably Waiters who threw the alley-oop to him. It might have been Josh Richardson. And Kemba Walker was kind of backing into Derek Jones. And it was a two-on-one. Like, they were going to score on either way. And Derek Jones just goes, screw it. I'm jumping over Kemba Walker. And, like, tries to finish. Gets You know, Kemba gets called for the foul, which I think was the right call. And just takes a nasty fall. And I'm just sitting there going, like, okay. Like, that, like I guess good that you went for it, but... God damn, like you're going to get hurt because it was just such a massive risk without much of a return. And I mean, the the enthusiasm and the athleticism that he plays with is a great thing. But I mean, especially because he has this injury history, I just freak out every time he jumps, basically, and there's anywhere near him. Goran Dragic, four of six from downtown on his own. The last couple of times I've seen him play, he's been out of the lineup. He's got this huge knee brace on. He played 28 minutes off the bench. I wonder if he's ever going to get back in the starting lineup. I think because they're playing better now uh, that that's not necessarily going to be the case. But his jump shot looks really good. I mean, he has not been quite the same getting to the basket. He's gonna, always been a defensive liability in a heat uniform, and that's not improved coming off of surgery. He and Wade actually are playing a lot of minutes uh, together. They might consider splitting that up as well since those are really uh, their two pick-and-roll guys. But I, I think Spo really likes that big unit without a traditional point guard to start games, especially with Bam out there now. They've got a lot of defensive versatility. Let's turn to Charlotte now. Where are they at in terms of fundamentals? The Hornets, who are actually currently the 10 seed, Orlando's in between, but since we covered the game with them, they're 31 and 38, 3 and 7 since the last 15 and 60, 21st in net rating, 14th in offense, 22nd in defense, projected to win 36 games, which put them 10th. I think that would be two games behind the Magic and Heat, who we said are tied for the 8th spot, and they only have a 14% chance of making the playoffs, getting worked in, in, in the game on Sunday 
definitely didn't help that, especially because it was against such a capable opponent. And yeah, and, and you know, really the team that's their, their biggest competition. And a, bu- a bunch of these teams, which I think is is notable, Miami included, but Charlotte as well, have challenging schedules in the immediate so charlotte plays after you know losing to miami and getting that win over the over the wizards on friday night they host philly minnesota boston and then play at toronto and i mean they basically have this is their last stand really even though the schedule does get lighter a little bit later on you know they play a couple teams that aren't pushing as hard they're when you're on the outside looking in you need to kind of make your way back into the conversation and they ha- to me when I've watched them, I watched part of the game when they got worked by the Bucks as well, and they just don't look like that team right now to me. I already had a few observations on them, but another one that I'll share: none of the young guys really are playing right now. You know, Bridges I mentioned he started, but that's just so that they can like nominally bring Lamb off the bench. Lamb played basically the most minutes you can possibly play coming off the bench in this one, thirty-three and. They went, it got out of hand late. Malik Bunn only played four minutes in garbage time. Even with Zellerat, Hernan Gomez can't get off the bench. With them struggling to score, I mean, I still think he's their best offensive option at center. I mean, Kaminsky really, even when Kaminsky was going up against Whiteside, wasn't able to get loose from three. He was 0 for 4 there. Does have a little bit more mobility at center, but you know, none of those guys are real sexy. And maybe we'll see some of these guys play more. Devontae Graham didn't play, uh, even with Sheldon Mack out, but, you know, that's not a surprise. Tony Parker actually uh, had a pretty good game in this one in, in his 17 minutes. But Dwayne Bacon, who, yeah, he's young, but I don't see him as a part of their future, has been playing over Bridges, playing over Monk right now. So it really doesn't seem like they're developing any of these guys for the future. I mean, for Monk to not even be in the rotation at this point is is a massive disappointment for the number 11 overall pick a year ago, even though there are some who like that pick. And I didn't think it was bad at the time myself, but he obviously still has a very long way to go to contribute to winning basketball. So they really just don't have any kind of young assets uh, on this team. The cupboard is looking very bare right now, and that's even with you know some big injury concerns uh, that they've had uh, throughout the season. Something that will come up in the next team, or not the next team, but a team after that that we talk about as well, is a definitive question for Charlotte is going to be, in terms of their, their draft pick, is how do they approach the rest of this? Now, it might kind of get decided for them if they get worked in this four-game stretch, three of which are against the best teams in the Eastern Conference, but it really is, I, I mean, because sometimes we end up thinking about these things as separate conference-wise, but in terms of record, Charlotte is basically, even with the Lakers, they are one game quote-unquote behind the Pelicans and Wizards in the win column. So if they wanted to take their foot off the accelerator, it could make a pretty big difference in their draft stock. And something that is important to remember about the lottery now is that moving down out of that kind of group, you know, moving from 10 to 6 actually makes a pretty big difference. So which of these teams, Charlotte, Washington, maybe Orlando, though I think they'll keep pushing a little harder for various reasons, which of those teams just decides, oh, it's time to throw in the towel? It, it earlier, I think, is going to be much better off for it. I'm not going to say especially because what you're getting, the reward is getting demolished by the Bucks in the first round because there's obviously a lot more that goes into it for the ownership especially. But, I mean, it kind of seems like that's what should be happening in Charlotte and they've lost three out of their, they've lost seven out of their last ten, so they're kind of in that boat anyway. But I want to see how they handle what comes next. Yeah, the Orlando Magic actually are 33 and 38, but due to uh, an easier schedule and the fact that they've been playing better, 
still up 65%. Playoff odds, they do project to finish tied with the Heat for that final playoff spot. Charlotte projected it to be out of it. Negative 0.5 net rating is 18th in the NBA, 24th on offense, 9th on defense. Still miraculous. Uh, you talked about last time we recorded that Steve Clifford uh, – Shouldn't necessarily be a contender, but should get some mention for uh, the coaching job that he has done this year. Shouldn't be a contender for Coach of the Year. I should say that 5-5, five and five, though, has really been compiled in a very weird way. Yeah, I mean, it was more striking before the last couple games because they beat Cleveland and Atlanta, but they had this bizarre stretch. I really cracked up. John Schumann had a tweet about, you know, like kind of who was on the fringe of the playoff race, and somebody replied to him and said, hey, Orlando shouldn't be on the fringe. They're a lock. They beat Golden State, Indiana, and Toronto over the last, like, two weeks. This was obviously a little bit ago. And John replied, yeah, over that same period of time, they lost to Chicago, New York, and Cleveland. And you can take that in a couple directions. One is, if they took care of business against the teams that they damn well better have beaten, they would be in a much better position. They would be competing with Brooklyn for the seventh seed. Maybe they could even be pushing Detroit a little bit. I don't think they would be all the way there. But the other part is, you know, getting a win over the Warriors, getting that win over the Pacers. Those were in consecutive matchups. They, you know, they had some found money there. And so if you're going to give them a couple of the easier ones, then maybe you take away one of the tougher wins. But yeah, I mean, Orlando, I just have a lot of trouble getting a feel for them. I do like some of what they're doing out there defensively. I actually like a lot of what they're doing out there defensively. But yeah, I mean, just not being able to take care of teams before the last two games is frustrating. Another player who has been frustrating to some degree in his career, but has also shown a lot of flashes is Aaron Gordon. You taking a look at his performance this season? Yeah, I mean, so Aaron Gordon, I mean, a player who signed a lucrative contract in the offseason who has prodigious physical talent just hasn't been a big part of like like I was just thinking about it practically like how much has his name come up on dunked on it doesn't seem like it's been that often 16 points seven and a half rebounds four assists in 34 minutes a game he's only missed four games this year which is great I mean he had that was one of the big things last year was that they had that hot stretch and then a bunch of guys got hurt and then they were just bad after that but something that's really concerning for me with Gordon, more in terms of, I guess you could say, like the shot distribution than anything else, is the lack of offensive growth. He's shooting the same on threes and twos this year as last year. And the biggest change in distribution is giving up some threes and taking more shots in the restricted area and then floater range, which is probably a good thing when a guy's shooting 34% from three. And it's also like, I've talked about the idea of aggressiveness before, because with him, you're getting more this year at the rim and at the floater range, but he's not getting more free throws. So so oftentimes, if all three of those things are pulling in the same direction, or especially rim and free throws, then you could talk about that being a, being a bigger thing. But when it's two when it's two of them, then you know it might be noise, it might be other things. But the most striking thing, it's one of those I've noticed it over the course of the year, but I hadn't like you know it's good sometimes to look at the collective numbers to really get a sense of this. Was how often they've used Aaron Gordon as the initiator in pick and roll. So as the ball handler, which means that like as the guy who's taking the shot. That's 135 possessions. But if you include passes, it goes all the way up to 214, 17% of his possessions. And they've been effective. You know, he's 58th percentile, basically 95 points per 100 possessions there, which as a pick and roll ball handler is pretty dang good. And so I watched a bunch of film. And what stuck out to me 
was it was a reminder of how teams just don't really know how to handle that kind of an action yet, especially for a guy who's like not the linchpin of an offense. And so some teams were switching it, and then the guy who is got switched onto Gordon just doesn't really have the footwork right, and Gordon was getting by him for a layup or was you know creating a seam that then became a pass. And the biggest piece of praise I want to give Gordon in those situations is that he's very good at making the like making the the straightforward decision and not forcing it. And I think that's a really important positive for a guy who isn't going to be, you know, the alpha and the omega for a team offensively. It's don't make mistakes, take an advantage when you get it. And then if you don't have it, just just do something else with the ball, pass it to somebody else, you know, give it to Fournier or DJ Augustine or something like that. And I thought that he did a, when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's something that a lot of guys his age, because remember Aaron Gordon, this is his age 23 season. He's younger than Kyle Kuzma. Like that a lot of these guys could take away is that like aggressiveness for aggressiveness sake can oftentimes lead to mistakes. And he wasn't really doing that. And I really liked it. Isaiah Briscoe suffered a torn meniscus. They do have him on a non-guarantee for $1.4 million next year. 500000 of that guarantees on July 15th with him recovering from this surgery. Although I guess Orlando probably won't be in a position by July 15th where that 500000 guarantee is really going to affect him. We, we could see them do what Dallas has done for a while, not necessarily recently, but for a couple of years where they just like, hey, we're just going to bring in some guys to create some competition for the end of our roster. We'll guarantee them a fair amount of money, and we just know that we're going to cut some of them, but that's okay. You know, it's not really anything other than just owner uh, money out of the owner's pockets. You know, they're not going to be in a position. They'll have used their cap space likely. They project to have about $16 million this offseason, but that's without re-signing Nikola Vucevic. If they do re-sign Nikola Vucevic, that gets vaporized. So they won't really have much reason not to just sign guys to some minimum contracts. be interesting to see, though, whether this ends up being a meniscus trim. They said it was a minor tear, so I'm guessing that probably means a trim rather than a repair, which would put him out past there. So you'd hope that he could be healthy and maybe even play in summer league prior to that $500,000 guarantee date. But he's been pretty effective, at least in terms of the on-off. You know, he does provide some defense, so it's had to, they've had to go back to Jerry and Grant now. He's played better, though, recently, perhaps because he hasn't had Mo Bamba out there as well. Ken Birch, they've been positive with him on the floor as well. We talked a little bit about how some of this bench performance might be unsustainable from a shooting perspective, or, or actually really from a defensive perspective. But Birch has been solid. He's going to be a restricted free agent this offseason. We'll have a minimum cap hold, but someone that a team might want to look at or just that the Magic can bring back as a third center if Bamba continues to really struggle next year. I certainly hope that's not the case, but it's possible he's been so bad this year so this team really just as we've talked about getting some of those big negatives john simmons was another one out of their group now if you look at who their bench guys are now it's not like west of Wundu and grant and birch and then terrence ross has really been the one constant so far it's not like those guys are, are some awesome bench group either but at least they've been able to defend and hold the fort down in a way that the more highly touted bench unit wasn't able to do earlier in the season something i'll note is that in their win over the atlanta hawks jaron grant did not come off the bench as the backup point guard they brought in michael carter williams on a 10-day contract they're just collect- oh my god they are right. they are collecting point guards that cannot shoot i mean what it's he doesn't have thoracic outlet syndrome like marco fultz does but wow and i mean 
I didn't watch much of this game, but from what I heard, I think I was following Josh Robbins or something like that. Like that, just having a, a competent operator like Carter Williams can be offensively when well, he has one. What, what, like <laughs> when when he has, like, I mean, sure. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. And I mean, I've talked a lot about how 48 minutes at point guard is ex- exceedingly important. And Briscoe had stepped nicely into that role, but now he's out for the rest of this year. One other quick thing I want to talk about with them, I've, I've talked about Aaron Gordon at length earlier, is that using the position splits that Cleaning the Glass does, Gordon plays 60% of his minutes at power forward and 40% at small forward. They treat Isaac as the as the four when those guys play together. You know, he's the quote unquote bigger guy. And you see this big split with Aaron Gordon in terms of like the team is way better when he's playing the three than the four. My read on it is that that's more personnel based because when he's playing the three, that's in their starting five, which is actually done pretty well. And Gordon is the small forward there. Then when he plays power forward, that's a lot of these mixed lineups that include those inferior players, you know, Mobamba, Grant, etc. And so I don't think it's like, oh man, they have all these things figured out and their offense falls off a cliff because, you know, Aaron Gordon isn't in the right role or anything like that. I think it's situational. And then the last note like that is the actual, the most successful Aaron Gordon lineup as, as their starting lineup has been better, I think, than some people think, is actually a different conception, which I it makes intuitive sense to me. And that's Augustine Ross, Fournier, Gordon, and Vooch. And so... I think that's their best offensive five, at least of the, you know, the that you can put together, and they've defended well enough. So that group actually, they've only played f- about 400 possessions together, but they have a plus 11 net rating. And I don't think, I, I obviously think that's too rosy, but the idea of putting offensive players out there and cobbling together enough defense, I, I don't know, I, I could see that working for this team, you know, when, when you don't have a lot of other options, by all means, you could try it out. I want to give a little credit here, too, to the age 31 season that DJ Augustin is having 63 percent true shooting for him i mean he's he might be like the best value of all the at least appeared to be sour 16s at the time but he's actually you know has turned out to be a starting level contributor these last couple of years you know not a super high usage guy but you know really one of their few pick and roll operators i mean every other perimeter player that they have is well below the league average in true shooting so that's uh Pretty rough, but Augustine, he's more than delivered on that contract. And, you know, someone that we really just didn't see coming, I mean, especially at his age, his height, that he's been able to play this well has been a really an underrated story and a huge part of why Orlando is still in it this year. Uh, we are not still in it anymore. We're going to call it quits here. We went a little longer than we were necessarily expecting, especially talking about that Bucks sixers game. So what we're going to do is we'll save the exciting part for last, all of these non-playoff contenders, the bottom five for tomorrow. Not sure what else we're going to talk about tomorrow, but we'll find something good for sure. No more breaks here. We're going to be going straight through basically until July with the full schedule from now on. So we will talk to you tomorrow. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.